I have to give you uh, two announcements <laughs> that I forgot to give you. Uh, one is after this service, there is a youth group meeting to decide on which conference we're going to go to this summer. So if you have a vested interest, please hang out for a little bit. It shouldn't take us too long. And then second, there is a solo being offered, and it's it. I had, I had intended to have it printed in the bulletin, but it looks like it didn't get there. So there will be a, a solo between him 633 and him 590 during distribution. Uh, so just be aware that that is there. Ay ay ay. Juggling, 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 trying to figure out what's the best piece to give you with the limited time that we have. Because this moment, the Red Sea crossing, I mean, it's as big as it gets in the Old Testament. I and mean, this, is, this is epic. Uh, there's a reason that the ten plagues of Egypt and the coming out under Moses has been made into multiple movies. And it's because it's unbelievable. It's utterly unbelievable. So how do we begin to address it in just a few moments? How do we deal with the story itself and its, its, again, epic nature? How do we deal with the modern complaint about it being just a myth and a story and impossible? And then from that, what do we do with it as Christians? I mean, isn't this the Jews, the people of Israel? What does this mean to us? What does it mean when St. Paul starts telling us that these things were written for our instruction in 1 Corinthians? Why is Jesus' baptism what we're remembering today along with this? All those pieces congealing. And, and to try to draw the line, I mean, it's my goal to draw the line for you, but I, I feel unup to the task. I think the best place to begin is simply verse 29 on that Old Testament sheet. Because it's everything. If you don't get this, you get nothing. If you get this, you get everything. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There was a moment in history when 30,000 plus people, can you imagine that crowd, wide and long, passed through something as big as Lake Superior as it was split down the center with a, a magical, a sorceress, a, a holy pathway that created walls of water on either side. And they walked through that under darkness with a fiery God just sitting over them. And a great host, a massive enemy, an army that rivaled all armies in the world, right on their heels, hungry for their slaughter. Put yourself in those shoes for a moment. I mean, there you are on the coastline. You know what's coming this way. You see the fiery God between you and them. You see this path opening. And this, this guy, Moses, you barely know him. You know he's related, but apparently he did some really awful stuff once, but now he thinks you're supposed to follow him. He's got a staff up in the air, and this is making the water split. But look, I mean, goodness gracious, that's water. That'll come down at any moment. And he says, go. And... I can't, I mean, slowly, 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 running is kind of where I would be, like on the swaying bridge before it collapses. So you got that moment right there. All by itself is marvelous. I mean, that death by itself is a, is a story we're telling. But then, having all 30,000 come through and Moses staff in the air the entire way to turn around on the other side to see your God of fire lift up into cloudy pillar, come across and set down behind you, but the waters are still there. 
And then that guy, that king, Pharaoh, king of kings at that time, with all power under him, having already lost everything in his empire. I mean, his people are covered in boils. The crops haven't grown for months. His animals are all dead. And now every firstborn son has also been slaughtered by God's own angel. I guess, what do you got left to lose at a certain point? He says, let's go. Yeah, sure, obviously it's a real God, but we can beat him. Let's go. And all the chariots of Egypt start pouring down into that pathway that formerly, again, was dry ground. I mean, I tell you, I can't get dirt to be dry when I want it to be dry. Can you? You can't do that, but it's dry ground. And they're going into it on dry ground, but as they pass further and further in, it begins to get wet. Oh, man. Was the water coming up from below? Was it trickling in on the sides? I don't know. The wheels clogged. The horses stick. People are being thrown down. And then, to make matters worse, God sticks his own finger in and just makes chaos in their head. So they're running left and right. And which way is in that? And then he says to Moses, put the staff down, man. Just bring it down. Down comes the staff. Down come the walls of water. Kaboosh! They're dead. Horses and men and chariot wheels floating in this well, mini ocean, small ocean. Now, of course, there's the other argument. How mean of this God. What a truly terrible God he is to do this to these innocent people. And there's a point at which, I mean, think about it. Each of those soldiers had a wife at home, kids. What becomes of them? And so it's easy to sit here from our high position and say, wow, that was pretty awful of him. But all of that has to require a certain assumption about ourselves, which is that we are good, and we as arbiters of what is good, deciders of what is good, have within us the power to tell God what is good. So that if God does something and we don't think it's good, obviously God's wrong. The other side of that would be to look at it and say, now that looks evil, but God did it, therefore it's good, which must tell me something about me. I'm not such a good judge of good and evil, because I think the good stuff's evil, so clearly I, I got the evil inside of me. And then just put yourself in that crowd of people, women, children, animals, going through this massive space in the sea, chased by an army, that had formerly enslaved them, making them make bricks without straw every day for a generation or more. And now on your heels, ready to slit your throats and plow you through and leave you dead. When you're on the other side of that ocean looking back and seeing that army destroyed by your God, I'm pretty sure you're not going to say God was mean. You're going to sing hallelujah. The enemy has been cast down. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea. Now, to really get this, you got to take us out of the picture even a little more and remember that this whole battle is not about humans and God. This whole battle is about demons and God. And that Pharaoh, for all of his pomp and presumptuousness, is just a picture of Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whoever he is, that first liar, who, 
is the prince and lowercase g, God of this age, to whom mankind has bowed the knee and under whom we are in constant subjection, mind and body. Pharaoh's a picture of him. Pharaoh's a picture of what God is going to do to him. Pharaoh's a picture of what God did to him in Jesus on the cross. As in the rolling, chaotic waters of death, Jesus entered into the abyss, the oblivion, as a man on our behalf, crushing all sin in him, in himself, and thus the devil dragging him down to the depths with him, but coming out again on that far shore on the third day, as it were, on dry ground. That is what's going on. And if you can see that as what's going on, and that all humans in history are, frankly, pawns in that game, but pawns that God does not want to sacrifice, pawns that he desires, intends, wills, and does save. If you can look at it that way, not only does Pharaoh only get what he deserves, I mean, just read the story. The guy's a moron. How do you run headlong into a war against a god that's that big and that active? He gets what he deserves. And so do the soldiers who followed him. And so do all people who are cast into the abyss of hell. And so ought you be cast. It's only what we deserve. And yet there's this greater nature to God that would prefer not to give you what you deserve but would prefer to redeem you from it, to buy you back from it, to pay the purchase price of it. And this happens by crushing the enemy and all his hosts under his heel. This happens by the death of a firstborn son. This happens by the blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts of you. That's the story. Shadow and fulfillment. History and its coming to pass in Jesus. Or prophecy and what that means as God's fulfillment of it in Christ. So from there, we come to places like 1 Corinthians 10, which is just downright confusing, honestly. We're going to get more of it next week. Paul, writing this letter to these people who are, I mean, this is like the most dysfunctional congregation ever. This is like first call out of the seminary, what on earth am I doing here? They are, they're getting drunk at communion. You've heard this before, right? Uh, A guy's got his mom like going to bed with him at night. I mean, it it is just disgusting what's going on here. And yet, through it all, his concern is less about all the chaos. I mean, he touches on that too, but he wants them to understand something specific. Because none of the rest of it matters. You can stop being drunk and stop committing sexual immorality and still be a child of the devil. None of that matters from on high that is Jesus Christ. And it is his light shining upon you that purifies you, period. Which frankly then would be a, a reason to change your behavior Not so you can prove something to God, but because it's just right in the first place. Every other attempt to reform your life will come back to your own self-justification, which means, by the way, I mean, are you used to this yet? It will condemn you too. 
Every time you try to fix it, you're setting yourself up to destroy it. But the other side of it is that it's fixed in Jesus. And no matter how many times you try to fix it and it comes tumbling down, it's landing on the rock. And nothing gets past the rock. And so you can pick it up again freely without a guilty conscience on the matter and and walk forward once more. Paul's trying to lay that foundation again and again throughout Corinthians. And at a certain point, he just kind of goes off into this story. I want you to know, our fathers were under the cloud. That's the pillar of fiery cloud. And passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, if you do a search for the word baptism in the New Testament, you're going to find two types of text. You're going to find verbs, where it's happening. Most of it will be in Acts. They went there, these people did this, they baptized them. Boom, that's it. There might be some stuff that goes on in the context. Maybe the Holy Spirit falls on people. Maybe they're speaking in tongues. Maybe there's a big sermon on Pentecost. But by and large, there's just a it happened kind of moment. And then you have texts that are like, baptism is like this. Baptism does this to you. This is baptism. Those are mostly in the letters. And they have much more content to them. They say things like, baptism buries you with Christ so that you might live a new life now. They say things like, baptism saves you. Crazy talk in a sense, but those are there. And then you got this one. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not about a historical event in the book of Acts, and it's certainly not explaining how baptism works. It just goes throwing it all the way back to Moses and the Red Sea, which never mentions baptism once in that entire story. Exodus does not have the word. But now here he says, all those people going through that big ocean are baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. He goes further. He says they ate the same spiritual food as us. They drank the same spiritual drink as us because they drank from the rock, spiritual rock, rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But if you know your story, you know that on the other side of the Red Sea, they're in a desert, very close to one. There's not a lot of water, 30,000 people. They're a bit thirsty. They start to whine. We do that very well. God says, hey, Moses, take that staff. Remember that staff? That staff that ate the snakes, that staff that turned water into blood, that staff that parted the sea, take that staff, go to that rock right over there. It's a big one. Go to that rock and strike it with all that you got. And when it is hit, the side will split and out will come. And there's the water, water again. The water will flow and you will have water to drink from the side of the rock. Now as I stand here with my hand sticking out of my side like this, please notice our Lord's side as well. The water flows from the side of that rock who is Christ. Yes? It's all on purpose. It's all in a straight line to him. The rock Paul talks about is not a spiritual rock in the sense that there wasn't actually a rock. There was actually a rock. He's saying there was something more going on with that rock than eyes could see. And there was something more going on with that sea that water and the destruction of Pharaoh than eyes could see. And he's saying that we Christians have the exact same thing now. God for us, saving us, and then, as if it were not obvious enough, he uses the word baptism just so we don't miss it. And in a few moments, he will also begin to talk about fellowship in the cup 
of Christ and fellowship in the body, bread of Christ. So that in this section, as confusing as it may be, it's impossible to walk away from it and not hear Paul saying that the mystery of water, bread, and wine as given for us Christians to receive in this New Testament era is the miracle that crossed the Red Sea and fed people in the wilderness. And that miracle is not just back then, but Christ on the cross for all. In both directions. By the power of his word alone, as a gift of holy grace, that is mercy, that is free alone. But I want you to know, brothers, that they were baptized just as you are. Now he goes on to give some encouragement. We ought not test Christ. We ought to recognize that you can fall away after you've received salvation. But the point for you today is to know that baptism is not a magical word done by priests to make us have stuff feel that we might maybe. Baptism is Jesus risen from the dead, saying to his apostles, when you go out to the world, I've told you what you're supposed to say. The Holy Spirit's going to make you remember all of it. And when anybody believes it, they're to come to this water, and you're going to get them wet with my name, the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wash them. That's the meaning of the word baptism. Wash them with my name, and I'm with you. And I'm with you, result of washing, result of teaching. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We on whom, how does he say it? The end of the ages has come. Paul ends the text. The end of the ages has come. Jesus in the Jordan River. Why the heck was that guy baptized? Did he need to be forgiven of his sins? Did he need to repent of anything? No, not a bit. John the Baptist doesn't get it. This guy, John the Baptist gets everything. No one has risen greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says it himself. And yet Jesus comes to him, he's like, wait, wait, this is backwards. And Jesus says, no, it's not. I must stand in the place of sinners. I must take the washing they need but can't endure. I must be baptized with the fire that would destroy them. And so he'll say this later as well. Jesus will say, I have a baptism to undergo and would that it were finished. He's talking again about the cross. So that in Jesus' mind at least, baptism for him into John's baptism, baptism from the Father upon him is not water, but death, crucifixion, suffering, torment, bloodshed in the fires of hell. And he enters it, like the people of Israel, into that water that rightly ought to crush them. Yeah. But by the power of that piece of wood held in the air, the snake upon a pole, as it were, they go through alive, and it's simply because Jesus came through that grave alive for you. It's not as though baptism today is just automatically Jesus having been in water, coming out of water as death to life, so all waters just do it. It's not like that. Not all water is holy water. It's water included in God's command and combined with God's word. When God says, let my people go, he means it. When he says to the devil, let my people go, 
He means it. When he says, lift up your staff and walk through the water, he means it. And when he says, I baptize you, he means it. Hmm. In the name of Jesus, amen.